the weather and uh, combined with the mountains and the high altitude uh, mountains is the most challenging thing. How we manage that, uh, that is what the pilots have to learn. Welcome to episode 3 of the Ground Effect podcast, coming to you not from Paris, France, as usual, but from Kathmandu, Nepal. That's right, I was in Nepal for two weeks on holiday, and while I was there, thought I'd speak to some pilots and talk aviation. So, in episodes 3 and 4, so this one and the one after, you'll be hearing from Nepalese pilots about what it's like to fly in this very, very different part of the world. Um, also, one of the things I always wanted to do was to experience an approach to Lukla Airport in Nepal. Now, some of you might know this airport because it's often considered the most dangerous airport in the world. Uh, because of its mountainous terrain, the short, sloped runway and the one-way approach, it's also considered an altipoch, comparable, uh, for example, to Courchevel or Megev here in France. Except Lukla is at a higher altitude of um, 9,200 feet. Of course, if you were in the aircraft, um, you'd be using Kathmandu QNH, and the indicated altitude at the runway threshold would be 8,900 feet. In this episode, I speak to senior captain Binod Puri, who flew me to Lukla Airport and back on a very early 6.30 flight. Um, it was supposed to be uh, the first of three flights to Lukla that day, but because of how quickly the weather changed, uh, the remaining flights were cancelled. Well, to make the best of this sudden change, um, we sat down at, a, at, at an airport hotel and talked aviation. As a little anecdote, um, I asked Captain Puri how he got these weather reports from Lukla, and he simply held up his phone and showed me WhatsApp. Turns out the guys over at Lukla would just send him photographs, literally, off the runway, um, and that would, that would be enough to sort of make that decision, because there's no weather station um, at Lukla. So that was, that was kind of funny. Um, also a little note, because we did record this at a restaurant, you'll, you'll hear silverware and music in the background. Uh, Nepali music, so there's, there's some culture there. Um, but it shouldn't be too loud, but just, just a word of warning. Um, and now, I'm very excited to present one of the most senior mountain flying pilots in Nepal, Captain Binod Puri. Alright, so welcome to episode 3 of the Ground Effect podcast. Uh, this time I'm with Captain Binod Puri who just flew me to Lukla Airport. Uh, Lukla Airport, uh, known for being one of the world's most dangerous airports. Um, we'll see if uh, Captain Puri actually agrees. Hello. Good morning uh, to, all, uh, to you and to all of your uh, viewers or listeners, listeners rather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so once again, thank you for flying me to Lukla. Uh, how long have you been flying to Lukla? I've been flying to Lukla for the last, what? 37 years. I started from co-pilot. Okay. 36, 37 years. Okay, so now this approach is well known around the world. And the first question my friends also ask me is, okay, it's one of the most dangerous. Do you think it's one of the most dangerous approaches in the, in the world? I think all approaches are dangerous, provided uh, you don't do it according to, uh, to whatever is laid down procedure. Okay. So, just saying uh, Lukla is dangerous, I would not call it dangerous, I would call it more uh, difficult. Uh, because you don't have much uh, visual clues, 
and there are a lot of illusions created because the runway is in a slope the slope average slope uh, is about 11% uh, there is a cliff at the end of the runway so all those things uh, create a illusion that you are high whereas you are not yeah. so it is a difficult thing you need to practice a lot before you start going into it but once you know the how to make the approach uh, it is not uh, dangerous as such it becomes dangerous because if uh, pilots start doing uh, not following the norms for example we have uh, if we can land at 10 knots tailwind. Now if we start going at 12 knots, 14 knots, then now it now the margin of error becomes narrower and narrower. Uh, so in that uh, way, the margin of error is very, very low. So you cannot make uh, errors much, many errors. And uh, if you make errors at the end of the period, you have no way out. Uh, that's, how it, that's why it becomes more difficult, I would say. Okay, now, that's a very interesting concept because um, you said that up to, for example, a 10-knot tailwind, perhaps that's manageable, right? Now, what do you do in an airport that is considered one way in, one way out, where you do not have the opportunity for a go-around at the last minute? Um, what if you notice um, wind shear or uh, a sudden increase in tailwind on approach? You have to just, after there is a point from where you cannot uh, uh, turn back. After that, you just have to go and land. Hopefully, nothing happens. Uh, but even if it, you need to make a modulated crash landing, you just do it because there is no way out. Uh, so that's why you need some experience to see whether uh, things can go that bad or not. Fortunately, we haven't had things going that bad many times. We have had few accidents where people have died. Like the, the pilot made the approach, it was clear, and suddenly when he was very close, fog lifted up, and he had to go through that fog, and he didn't make it uh, to the... Yeah. Was that the Goma Air one, or no? No, that was uh, sometime back, uh, whether it was called Tara Air or uh, Yeti Airlines, okay. one of them. Okay, and um, now we're going to go back to look at the ends, but I'm interested and I think our listeners are interested in how you got into aviation. How did that start for you? Did you always want to be a pilot? Uh, one of my uh, first cousins, he was a pilot in uh, Nepal, so I, I liked uh, that course. I wanted to be a pilot, but why? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't read my magazines or uh, we didn't have uh, like right now Google or anything yeah. so whatever we could read was uh, material we can find yeah. and it is uh, it was difficult at that time in the late 70s and all we had to buy books and all those that was the time period so I did not read but I wanted to become a pilot uh, so when uh, I finished my studies I was here in Kathmandu Royal Nepal, at that time it was called Royal Nepal Airlines. They had a SIDA, uh, Canadian uh, Aid. Canadian Aid, they gave a scholarship program for pilots and engineers for Royal Nepal. So there were 24 of us which were selected through uh, process. Uh, some, uh, I don't know, 
seven, eight hundred had applied. So we twenty-four were chosen from that process, and that's how I got into uh, aviation uh, through scholarship. And so you trained in Canada. Yes, I trained in uh, Vancouver. And what was that like? So when you first started, uh, was that uh, on a Cessna or? Yeah, Cessna and Cherokee. We started in a Cherokee Piper. So uh, it was you were doing only that at the time, full time training as yeah. Yes, full time training. It was a paid uh, course, so it took us about uh, one year, yeah. eleven months to be exact. Uh, so we just started uh, right from. Uh, PPL yeah. and just uh, went through all the training requirements uh, and completed all of us completed within a year. Okay. So um, by the time you left Canada, you had your PPL, you had your multi-engine, you had your instruments, all that. All that. Yes, all that. Okay. And so. And uh, we also had our. Uh, that time, uh, Royal Nepal was flying uh, twin otter. We were hired for twin otter, so we also got our twin otter endorsement there. Okay. Uh, twin Otter, which is also a twin engine turboprop? Yes, turboprop. Okay. And so you came back to Nepal and you started flying. Um, what route did you start flying? Same, all these uh, mountain uh, regions. This uh, Twin Otter is a stall aircraft, short takeoff and uh, landing. Uh, so I started my career with stall airfield, right, right from uh, Lukla, and th that time. Uh, RNC was flying uh, much, many more airfields right now than uh, right now. We had some maybe 20, 24 uh, small, small airfields all over the country. And that, that's where we, we used to fly. Now, one of the things that's interesting about um, flying aircraft like the Twin Otter or the Dornier, which you later flew, is that they are designed for short runways and perhaps even flying uh, at very high altitudes, right? Um, was it? Did it take you some adaptation to fly uh, from Canada to flying in Nepal? Uh, yes, uh, like when we fly as co-pilots, actually co-pilots are just uh, trainee pilots, I would say. You're just getting uh, trained to know the aircraft, fly the aircraft, and uh, prepare yourself to become captains. So uh, the instructors and the other captains will be teaching you on every flight, and that's how you learn about the aircraft. And I suppose that, um, to my knowledge, there's no training um, institution here in Nepal, so pretty much every pilot that flies in Nepal has been trained at another country. Yes, for the initial, uh, till CPL and multi-engine rating, everything is done with instrument. Everything is done somewhere outside the number of countries that they go to. Now, um, I was curious, uh, Nepal has a lot of mountains, um, a lot of the airfields are uh, a visual, have visual approaches. Um, how often do we fly IFR within, so IFR for the listeners, so instrument flight rules within the country? There is quite a uh, number of uh, airfields, especially in the uh, Tarai regions, what we call Tarai. Lower in the land. south, yeah. Yes, south, uh, lower land, uh, where there is IFR approaches. We don't have any ILS in that whole country. So we do VRDME approach or VR approach. Uh, so there are IFR routes which we can fly, yes. but uh, those routes don't go into the mountains because uh, then the MEA becomes just too high for us to fly. Okay. And in your extensive um, number of years of flying, extensive experience, have you noticed a lot of changes in flying in Nepal? Yes, a lot of technology has now been introduced, right? 
from uh, when we used to fly, we just had NDBs and one VOR. Now the country has a uh, few number of VRs, uh, one to four or five of them. Okay. So we have VRs uh, which cover most of the ranges in uh, the country, in the, within the country. Previously, it was just NDB. There were a lot of NDBs. Uh, but as you know, NDBs are not that reliable and it was difficult uh, flying with only NDB. Now, obviously with the GPS, things have become very, very easy for navigation especially. And uh, now even the eGPWS is a mandatory requirement for all uh, aircrafts, twin engine aircrafts. So eGPWS is there. GPS is there, so a lot of, uh, that has helped uh, the pilots a lot, especially with the navigation and previously we used to get lost because uh, flying VFR and uh, suddenly you don't know where it is, so we had to go somewhere dead reckoning, then find some uh, waypoint or flexors and then proceed back to the destination. Okay, so previously it was, you would take off from, for example, Kathmandu Airport, and then you would fly visually, so landmarks, rivers, mountains, and you would find yourself somewhere you, th you thought, okay, I've never seen this before. So dead reckoning, you would try to, uh, well, you, you still have a compass, and using that, you would find another place, and then you'd say, okay, now I know where I am, and then you, could, you would continue. Uh, yes, pretty much that, uh, by looking at maps, seeing the rivers, and uh, we had a lot of uh, places where we could say, okay, this mountain is here, or even the hill, some shape of the hill, all those things, were, that's how we used to fly. But uh, again, when there is we fine weather, yes, we can see all the landmarks. But when there is weather, something is covered, some, sometimes you are too low or too high, and that whole uh, scenario changes. That's how you get lost. Uh, you think it is uh, the same place, but it is not. Okay, yeah, I can't even imagine flying because, as you know, as part of my PPL training, uh, I haven't even started my navigation uh, part. Um, but we, we will have to learn how to navigate visually. Uh, of course, now we have GPSs if we want to. We can even just have an iPad and we can navigate that way. Yeah. But um, for me, it's really, it's really amazing that that's how we, we used to do it. Um, so you talked about technology, and I, something I noticed during today's flight is that because we come so close to the mountains, the ground proximity warning system, and I suppose that uh, collision avoidance system is is screaming at, at moments so is that in every flight yes uh, because uh, because we are visual so we just uh, disregard them but uh, previously we used to uh, put it off uh, nowadays what we are saying is let us put it on in on and just inadvertently if we get into clouds if the GPS gives a warning we just follow it so when we are visual, we don't follow it. We just disregard and say, okay, we are visual. Okay, now a few questions about the, um, the flight itself because, uh, again, this is my first time flying um, any route like this, any mountain route like this, actually. Um, what is the average indicated airspeed for uh, on uh, cruise um, flying for this kind of route? The true airspeed will be in this aircraft is about uh, 190, 200 knots. Okay, and the approach speed for Lukla? Approach speed we uh, at uh, 85 knots. Okay, 85 knots. That's still that's still quite fast. <laughs> yeah, most of the aircraft do uh, 80, 85 knots. Like twin otters go to 80. Uh, 
Don is also 85. We also we can come back to 80, but uh, we prefer 85. The stopping uh, uh, performance of this aircraft is quite good, so we go at 85, and when when uh, we are touching down, it touches down 80 or below 80. Okay, so now you mentioned the threshold, sort of the margin uh, for error is very low. Um, I know there, I, I, was, I was reading about the Pilatus PC-6, the old, it's one of my dream aircrafts, and those things have sort of thrust reversers. Uh, the ones you land, they can slow down very, very quickly, um, and even dive, I think, uh, without gaining a lot of airspeed. Um, how do you slow down? Is it, is it um, friction, or do you have, uh, or simple braking? No, all the, all the air, stall aircrafts have uh, thrust reversers. Okay. So the uh, propeller has uh, what we call beta and uh, reverse. So we use reverse to slow down, and obviously the brakes are there. Uh, like the P Pilatus has a better performance uh, for short field because, uh, of course, it's carrying much less uh, passengers. All right, so um, thrust reversers uh, as soon as you touch down. Um, you mentioned a few other planes there. You mentioned the Twin Otter, you mentioned the Dornier. Um, you started with Twin Otter, right? Yes. What are the different planes that you've flown over the years? In stall, I've flown uh, Twin Otter, uh, Dornier, and now this Lek 410. Okay. And uh, then I've flown uh, HS748, that is called Avro, and uh, Jetstream. And those are the, I've flown uh, mainly turboprop. I've not flown uh, jets. Okay, amongst these aircrafts, uh, aircraft, um, which one is your favorite to fly? Uh, for stall airfields, uh, for stall aircraft, uh, Dorne is the best for Nepal. Uh, it, it has much, many more uh, safety features, and it, uh, because of our high terrain and uh, uh, short fields, it gives uh, much better performance even uh, in a single engine, okay. better than uh, Twin Otter or uh, Let 410. Okay. I would say LED 410 is uh, slightly better than Twin Otter. And, and you mentioned that you never uh, transitioned to jets. Was that something that you don't didn't want to do? Uh, you prefer stall flying? Uh, I was with uh, Royal Nepal Airlines for 10 years, and then I shifted to uh, for domestic uh, private airlines. That's how when it, that uh, come in 1992, I think. So then I went to private uh, airlines. So my colleagues and all, they went to jet, because uh, in uh, Royal Nepal there was a jet, so you could transition. Because I uh, chose to come into uh, private airlines, domestic, there, was, there were no jets that time. So I was uh, stuck uh, with double props, uh, and that's how I didn't go to j jets. And at that time, uh, we didn't have much opening outside. Uh, not uh, right uh, now. So, right now, yes, there are a lot of openings. If we want, we can go get trained and uh, get jobs uh, even outside uh, for jets. But because of my age, it's just too late uh, to go anywhere else. <laughs> okay, so the aviation field in Nepal is developing at a, at a crazy rate. Like, I, I came back and there's jets that fly local flights, and that's new for, for Nepal. Um, okay, so let's just for a while. Um, go to your initial training again, um, because a lot of our listeners are new pilots. Uh, if you remember, uh, what was the most, so what was the hardest thing about learning how to fly for you? Takeoff landing is the, the <laughs> most difficult thing. Uh, 
That time the average, I don't know what they do right now. That time uh, the average uh, a pilot would take uh, to go solo would be about uh, 16 to 20 hours. Uh, that's what they teach you first. And then uh, the rest of the thing, uh, like uh, all stalls, steep turns, spins, uh, all those things uh, later on come, that's unless you want to go for uh, aerobatic flying, that, that's a different uh, issue. Otherwise, for a normal thing, uh, that is not too uh, difficult. And the other, uh, those are for VFR flying. Now, if once you start going to IFR flying and then uh, going to the bigger airfields, then the navigation and the communication uh, gets more complicated, you have to understand, and then the follow the uh, procedures. Those become IFR procedures for the beginners will uh, become a little bit uh, complicated. IFR flying becomes uh, complicated uh, because now you are you have to fly uh, with the instruments. Uh, but uh, let me tell you, once you know how to fly the instruments, even on in VFR conditions, it's easier to fly instruments. You know, uh, the smaller corrections you make, uh, the instruments are actually telling you. So you if you Initially, if there's any corrections to be done, it's a smaller correction. A VFR flying, you may need a bigger correction. So, for example, uh, doing a steep turns, or even 30 degrees bank uh, turns. If you follow the instruments, you can do it perfectly. Now, if you are just following VFR, looking outside and the airspeed and the altitude keeps on moving up and down. So, it's easier instrument flying once you know. But, uh, but you have to start uh, learning that. Yeah, right now I'm, a, I'm at a very early sta stage of my training. Uh, I think I got, I've got about 10 hours. Um, and the first thing that was difficult for me was um, taxiing on the ground, like not, not even anything in the air. The taxiing was hard. And of course, radio communications. Um, in our airfield, they allow us to do it in French or in English. But when you don't know the exact thing, you get nervous. Um, and then you realize, actually, they're there to help you. <laughs> they're not really there to challenge you. Um, so, I, but the funny thing is now that I'm working on my landings and I'm working on my maneuvers, uh, you're right. Like we're, we're encouraged to look outside the window and not look at the instruments um, because it's VFR flying. Uh, so they say, OK, almost um, yeah, 80 uh, to 90% of your vision should be outside the window. But what in instrument flying, it's the exact opposite, right? Yeah. So how was how that transition? Was it difficult to go from VFR to IFR flying? Uh, we were, to, before flying in the aircraft, we have to do some simulator or a link, uh, ground-based training. That's where you start learning how to uh, see the instruments. Yeah. Uh, you have to scan the instruments, and uh, that scanning part you have to learn. And once you learn how to scan and be proficient with it, then it becomes easier because then you, yeah, when you are doing uh, IFR flying, you have to do be good in scanning. Right. Where with VFR flying, you have to do scanning outside, yeah. uh, looking at the traffic, clouds, uh, rest of the thing. Yeah. In IFR, you are doing inside. Yeah. So that's a transition uh, where people find it a little bit difficult. But once uh, and once you are flying uh, IFR. Because of the small changes, you see it and you start correcting. So sometimes you correct, over-correcting, and all those things initial happens. One, like, like it is like uh, you said, even uh, art is difficult initially. But once you get used to it, now you know what they are going to say, 
and you know what you are supposed to say after a few couple of RTs or few hours, you know what, uh, unless they, and most of the RT is done with the same type of uh, words or sentences. So now you, the mind just uh, uh, gives the answer automatically. So that's, that's how the flying is also in the rest of the flying. Well, initially it's difficult, but once you start doing it more often and all, uh, then it, the mind brain takes it automatically. So now you do it automatically. You don't even think yeah, about it's, it. It becomes uh, smooth. Yeah. Um, okay, so the challenges of flying uh, you know, are really interesting because as a student, they're very different. But when we talk about Nepal, uh, often it's considered challenging for multiple reasons. Uh, the altitude, uh, the, I mean, I imagine when you were flying in Lukla in the early years, the runway was not even paved. Yes. Yeah, it was not paved. There are a lot of, uh, I would not say, there are stones which are quite big, more bigger than even our fists. So uh, we used to have some uh, damages done to the props or to even to the belly of the aircraft. So we had to be, there was nothing we could do. There was nothing we could manage or do anything. We just had to, after landing, and uh, see that things were not damaged uh, beyond a certain point. All right, so the question that um, a lot of my friends are also curious about is what is, in your point, in your perspective, the most challenging thing um, in aviation right now in Nepal? Uh, is it something to do with more management or technology, or is it um, physical resources, the state of airports? Uh, the ch challenging part of Nepal is the mountains and the weather. We don't have, uh, we have a lot of uh, cloudy weather and the weather it becomes bad very fast. So that's the weather and uh, combined with the mountains and the high altitude uh, mountains is the most challenging thing. How we manage that, uh, that is what the pilots have to learn. And what's interesting to our viewers is that we're actually at an airport hotel right now, next to the airport, um, and Captain Puri um, had a flight, but the conditions that looked like changed very quickly. So that's how quickly it can change. We flew this morning, uh, you flew two flights? No, that was my first flight. Okay, that was the first flight, and then, yeah, and then, and then you, now you're waiting for a call, and if things change, uh, you'll go fly again. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. And how do you get information about weather in Lukla? I, I suppose we don't have live weather. Uh, is it by calling them or? Yeah, there is tower people there. So we have now communication. Uh, the, another thing which has improved is the communication. Previously communication itself was uh, not that good. Like right now we have cell phones and all where everyone can uh, call. We have, uh, uh, people can take pictures of the weather and send us via uh, apps, Viber or uh, WhatsApp, uh, whatever. Okay. So, right now, what the weather is, we can know immediately. Okay. So, uh, due to internet and all this uh, new technology, that, that was not there uh, previously. Yeah, because even at, uh, I believe Lukla is at an altitude of um, 9,000. 9, 9, yeah, but even um, at that altitude, uh, very far away, you have 3G. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so that, that really helps. Um, so, for me, I, it's one of my dreams to be able to land at an airfield like Sangbote or, um, or Lukla. Well, we'll see if that ever happens, but it's one of my dreams. But for you, um, having, all the, having this experience, um, what was one of your um, sort of the more interesting experiences that you've had, like uh, good or bad, um, a slightly not the most normal experience, uh, an interesting uh, flight perhaps? Uh, 
that you remember? Okay, I nearly uh, went out of the runway in a stall field long time back when I was with Royal Nepal Airlines. Uh, there was two of us. The other was also a captain. He was cleared to that field. Uh, the field was called uh, Lamidana. So in uh, that time, uh, it was nine. Around 90, when there was an earthquake in the east, yeah. there was an earthquake and we had to do a lot of flights from Biratnagar, uh, bringing uh, rice and all those uh, things, uh, materials. Uh, we are going to one of the fields in uh, east, near Lukla, but not Lukla, that was called Lamidara. So the other captain, he was flying. We uh, normally make approach uh, on runway 26. Uh, this because there was cloud and it was all fogged uh, at the end of the runway on 26. So we made approach from 08. Again, from 08, uh, we, we do make at times, but not many. Um, this was a newer captain. Uh, so he was making the approach. So I was not, uh, it was not a big, uh, that airfield is around 4,000 feet long enough it's not that critical uh, airfield so he was making uh, an approach but uh, things went wrong and uh, by the time we stopped we we just managed to stop at the right end, end of the runway and that was the time I learned uh, that we uh, even if I'm uh, someone else is flying I have to watch what's happening I was not really paying too much attention so that's something I learned. <laughs> oh, uh, thank God nothing went uh, drastically wrong, but it was very, very critical. We just managed to stop. Okay. Well, yes, and, and uh, from what I've heard um, or I've read on the internet, one of the things about these uh, stall approaches is when you're used to it, it looks normal, but things can go bad really quickly. So you must have a very high level of proficiency uh, and ex expertise um, as to what you're doing. Yes, and that's what I said. Whenever, whatever approach we make, even in Kathmandu, uh, things if you are if you are just too lazy or just saying uh, complacent, and just give it, everything will be okay, okay. Then things can go wrong, and if you don't correct it uh, immediately, you don't have much time, and uh, thing and things can go drastic, and you end up dead or really seriously injured. Because in Kathmandu there was an accident of Royal Nepal. There are twin otter. Uh, the, the Kathmandu runway is 10,000 feet. For a twin otter to take off from Kathmandu, you require maximum 3,000 feet. So one, uh, th these two pilots that took off uh, towards the north, they used half the runway. So even they had 5,000 or 6,000 feet there. Small thing went wrong in the takeoff. Two captains, new captains, they were deciding what to do. One was aborting, one was taking off. They aborted and uh, put on takeoff power twice. And by the end, they just could not, neither could they stop the aircraft nor get airborne, and they crashed and people died. Now, this is an interesting um, question because. Over the years, the notion of CRM, cockpit resource management, has become very important. And around the world, after the Air France, um, I, th I believe it was flight 447, 
to Rio, from Rio to Paris, uh, we realized that that crash happened principally because of problems in communication between the captain and the first officer. Um, in your experience, has that gotten better in Nepal? Uh, yes, yes, that, that has, uh, especially for to the pilots, like uh, previously uh, we used to think uh, captain is God. He never makes mistakes, uh, whatever he does, uh, you just follow. But with the CRM concept, we have uh, taught the pilots, especially the older ones like us, that we are not God, we are prone to make mistakes, errors. Uh, because we are human beings, everyone makes. So someone else can uh, see that, and if they, if they see it, they should inform us so that corrective action can be done uh, immediately. So culturally, there's now not so much of a taboo to speak out against the captain if you're a trainee first officer. Uh, that is what we are teaching. That's what we are plan doing going forward with. But obviously, it's not only here. I think uh, everywhere in the world, uh, the new co-pilot will be very much uh, apprehensive uh, to tell anything something is going wrong unless he see something drastically wrong because uh, smaller things it's very difficult for a new co-pilot co to figure out whether it's right or wrong yeah. so what we in CRM teach whether it's right or wrong is not for you to yeah. decide if you think it is wrong just tell it yeah. maybe it is you are wrong but that doesn't matter because sometimes if the captain is wrong that's what we want to uh, avoid right and of course, what you mentioned with like putting toga power, one person's boarding, the other person's taking off. Um, you know, you have this very basic notion of pilot flying or pilot monitoring. Um, and even in flight training, something that we try to do as much as possible is to re-sort of state out loud my aircraft or your aircraft. Um, but I imagine normally on takeoffs or landings, you do have a captain who uh, a pilot that's designated to do that, right? So that error that happens, uh, that was perhaps because it was there was confusion. More than confusion, see, those were uh, colleagues, both were uh, captains, just uh, recently upgraded captains and flying. So when you are flying with colleagues, this is what happens because you're, uh, uh, you think you're invincible. Because if I know so much, because I've become captain, I know so much, and there's another colleague of mine, he also knows. So our uh, combined uh, knowledge is higher than what actually it is. That's what we feel. So then we start taking more risk, uh, doing things, uh, even more uh, crazier things. That's what, uh, that's human nature, not only here, anywhere in the world, it, it is. So both of them were colleagues, so one said, okay, aboard. The other said, no, no, we can take off. Uh, that's the confusion. So they, no one could uh, decide uh, which one uh, to follow. Uh, and the person in the left seat, he was not uh, uh, commanding enough to say, no, we are doing this or that. Okay. So it's it sounds like a mix of complacency and also confidence, confidence that is perhaps a little too much. Okay. So. Do you think uh, this is a good time for young pilots uh, anywhere in the world, but also in Nepal, to get into flying if they're interested? Yes, this is a good time for anyone to get into flying uh, throughout the world because as you can see, uh, if you go to the internet and all they have said predicted, predicted 
there is going to be a lot of uh, shortage of pilots uh, the way aviation is uh, growing so there is a good opportunity uh, so if you people who want to become pilots if they become get their uh, ratings and all uh, soon license soon and start flying anytime anything uh, initially and then you have uh, once you have thousand hours or so then you have uh, opportunity to go to jets and bigger fleets or anywhere in the world okay okay i see uh, because right now we're seeing a lot of uh, programs for ab initial training from big airlines as well so even air france uh, now has a program where they uh, as it was the case for you they train you for free okay. Um, from Abu Nisho all the way to becoming a first officer. Uh, so there is a lot of opportunities and I suppose this is as good a time as any. Yes, uh, in Nepal, especially in Nepal, right now there is uh, going to be a lot of shortage for of especially stall captains. Uh, people, what is happening is stall uh, to become uh, a captain, like once you start flying as a captain to Lukla and other stall phase, it takes, uh, if you do it very, very fast also, it takes nearly five years once you become come as a co-pilot. So that's a long time. And by that time, there are opportunity. People will say, okay, I have an opportunity to go to jets and all. So they will jump to jets or bigger field fleet, which is fine. But then stall uh, aircrafts are uh, the ones that suffer. So you don't have a uh, lot of pilots. Right now also in this country, we have a shortage of, acute shortage of uh, stalled pilots. So that, that's interesting to me also because my principal interest is um, a general aviation, so mostly recreational. And I look at Nepal and look at the small airfields and I think, wow, we, but we don't really have general aviation. Uh, we don't really have backcountry flying or um, bush flying. Um, and I think, you know, perhaps naively, well, that's something that we could develop. Uh, do you think that that's something that could have potential in a country like Nepal? It becomes uh, too expensive here. See, uh, <coughs> for such a flying, uh, the local people should uh, support it, right? And the local people's income is not so high to go flying because uh, we don't ma manufacture aircrafts, we don't have fuel, the fuel prices are so high the fuel price itself uh, will make the cost of uh, flying too expensive. And the other part uh, thing is this uh, flying, uh, local flying will be, has to be done mostly in single engine. Right now there are not many single engine aircraft, smaller aircrafts, which is, uh, you can uh, let's say hire for 200, 250 dollars per hour. That category, that can go to this high altitudes. Now, uh, unless you, uh, keep these aircrafts on the uh, lower plane south of uh, in the southern part of Nepal you cannot uh, operate where where will you operate all the stall fields these aircrafts will not go even the Cherokee and all will not perform uh, give you that performance right because the, uh, the engines that we're using often are like these like coming um, or we also yeah. have these Rotax engines now that are there was a fuel consumption of about 10 liters per hour, really low, but their performance is not comparable. Yeah, the, the performance is not there. And we are hot and high. Yeah. Nepal is, uh, unfortunately, it is high, uh, high mountain region, and the average temperature is ISA plus 20. <laughs> Throughout the year, even in winter, it is ISA plus 10. So we don't even have ISA conditions. So ISA plus 10, 
those engines don't perform uh, well at uh, high altitudes. All right, so that's that, that, that's fascinating. Um, let's go into back into your current flying now, and I'm just interested in. I will also have my coffee. I, I, what you're saying is so interesting that I think the coffee <laughs> is secondary. Um, so what do you enjoy most about flying today with all this experience? I, I still like uh, the uh, flying into all these uh, uh, mountain regions, the stall fields, because it's, uh, every time it's uh, more than a challenge. It is uh, difficult, uh, so you have to be... Constantly, you have to be looking for uh, uh, things that are not uh, going wrong, that that you don't make mistakes. And then uh, it is nice also to have the younger pilots come and you teach them, you show them, and so that they uh, come up uh, to become captains to uh, this field. And uh, uh, more than jet flying, this is actual, uh, you handle the aircrafts. So it's more flying. Nowadays, uh, the other uh, bigger, air, uh, bigger aircrafts are more management than flying uh, because computers are flying. And you have to, of course, that's even more difficult. Now you have to manage uh, that uh, bigger things. Here it is uh, still uh, hand and throttle uh, flying. And so are you hand flying the whole uh, entire flight from Kathmandu to uh, Lukla? Uh, some of our, our aircrafts have autopilot, so we use... Uh, very simple autopilots. So we use autopilots to at least uh, do the normal uh, cruise flying. So hold altitude, uh, also for the turns or not so much? Yeah, uh, they hold altitudes, they hold a heading, uh, they make turns, climb, descend. We can control that through the autopilot. So basic those things we, uh, we do. But uh, once we start descending into the approach, uh, then we disengage and we have to do with uh, manual flying. Okay, and um, a hypothetical question. Um, we've talked about your favorite aircraft that you've flown. Oh, actually, did we? We didn't mention which was your favorite aircraft. Uh, Dornier, uh, oh, yeah. first all airfields. Okay, so the Dornier 228, right? Dornier, Dornier 228. Okay, so all right, and what is a, an aircraft that you'd like to fly, sort of your dream aircraft? Obviously, the jets, yeah. uh, the bigger jets, uh, I would... I wouldn't mind uh, flying uh, the, the Airbus and the Boeing, just to differentiate. Uh, I read somewhere that Boeing is uh, better for pilot because we are now we are not used to joystick flying, uh, especially our generation. So that's why uh, it is uh, better to fly Boeing for us. So maybe uh, fly the seven eight seven or triple seven yeah. and also fly Airbus 320 or 330 and see the differences. Yeah, it's it's it, similar aircraft. Yeah, it's really funny because they're similar aircraft but apparently the philosophy is so different because apparently in a Boeing if you if the aircraft does something like trim the aircraft you will see the trim wheel moving whereas in an Airbus it's all computers. Yeah, well, so I think uh, it's easier for us to fly Boeing. Their philosophy is different. and. Airbus, we are not used to it. Maybe the new generation where uh, computers and uh, people are playing with uh, their joysticks and the games and all they play, uh, the new generation, maybe th for them, uh, Airbus is more practical and more easier. For us, uh, because we are uh, used to having the control columns and also for us, uh, Boeing. Boeing is better. Okay. 
And what is, do you have a favorite um, now that you, you mentioned that you weren't, you didn't really have access to a lot of magazines and certainly not the internet back in the day, but now do you have a favorite book or a movie about aviation? No, not really. Uh, I've seen, but I've uh, not, uh, like movies and all, they are okay to watch, but uh, they are not nowhere near reality because they cannot. Uh, that is uh, because there are other values uh, to be added. So you even if you just be real, it becomes boring for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, and do you have um, a favorite technology device um, that you like to have with you when you're flying? No, not really. Because uh, right now, the, for us uh, flying, uh, the flights I do, the EGPWS itself is the best. Okay. It is and, and what is that? EGPWS, Enhanced uh, Ground Proximity Warning System, okay. uh, which uh, which helps you avoid CFIT, uh, control flight into terrain. Uh, in Nepal, CFIT is one of the biggest killer. So EGPWS, with the advent of EGPWS, uh, we should not now, I think, we should not have any more CFIT, right. but we are still having. So that's another question that I, you, we're, we're flying in density altitude, right? Um, at, at thrust, that's quite high. Um, at cruise, thru at cru cruise thrust is about, do you know, uh, like average, you, you're, you're not using 100% power, you're maybe 80% or? Yeah, around 80%. Okay, 80%. So imagine, uh, again, hypothetically, and this might be a very naive question, um, you're flying and you have, um, you enter a cloud. Uh, and like you mentioned, um, you now depend on the ground proximity warning system to tell you uh, if there's terrain uh, that you did not anticipate. So if you hear that horn, the, the, the alarm, and you're in the cloud, um, what is the course of action? Do you pull up immediately, or do you put full power and you pull up? Well, uh, the enhanced GPWS uh, system will give you enough time because it shows uh, there is a map, like for example, a terrain uh, contour type of map. It is showing you, so if you are watchful, why would you even get that alarm? You will avoid that uh, situation much before uh, you get an alarm. Getting an alarm is, a, is not a good situation yeah, to be in. Uh, yeah. So, because there is always, uh, they give you, you can say 20, 30, 40, 50 nautical miles ahead. Okay. Any any nautical miles yeah. ahead, uh, because we have the selector. Right. So I will know before uh, entering into those terrain type of terrain yeah. that uh, I am going to. So I'll avoid it. Okay. That's how we have to. We are supposed to use the uh, EGPWS, not get into it, and then uh, yeah. start avoiding it. It's one of those th things that you hope you never have to use. Yeah, because no, we use it to avoid getting into a situation uh, where. Uh, we don't have to make uh, abrupt maneuvers. Okay. All right. Um, I guess the question now is for you personally, as captain, uh, what is what are you looking forward to? What's your next move? Oh, I just have around uh, four years left of flying, so I'm happy uh, yeah. just <laughs> being here. Uh, hopefully, I will complete. Uh, my uh, next four years of flying and then I retire. There, there's nothing much more I can, uh, I have to achieve or uh, say and uh, maybe pass on my knowledge to the newer pilots, that's all.
And in all your years of experience, uh, is there one particular moment that stands out as being one of your best moments in flying? No, not really. <laughs> it's not been too much be, experience. Uh, no, it's not been uh, too much eventful. Uh, or uh, basically, if a pilot, anyone, any pilot, uh, see in flying, what happens is there is a safe envelope. Okay, if you are within that envelope, you will have a not too much uh, events happening and they're safe, we are within. Now, once we start going out of that envelope, then you will say, oh, I nearly did this, oh, this I nearly, oh, I was saved. Uh, what I tell my uh, other junior pilots are, you cannot always say, oh, I nearly uh, uh, did this, or nearly this happened. How many times are you going to say that? You should never be, uh, be in a situation where the, uh, Oh God, thank God I got Maybe once, maybe twice. But beyond that, uh, you have made some errors in your uh, uh, right ahead. You have yeah. done something wrong yeah. and you have not corrected that error. Then uh, you have landed in that situation. Okay. So you have to avoid that situation. So if uh, people say that, oh, I did this, I got out of this, uh, by chance, and most of the time by, by chance, you just do it uh, maximum things and maybe get out of it. You should not be in that situation. So in that case, no news is good news? Yes, uh, there is a saying, uh, if you see in the internet, there will be a saying, who is a superior pilot? A superior pilot is one who uses his superior knowledge to avoid situation where he has to use his superior skill to get out of it. Yes, I've, I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of expressions that pilots use, like the, there's old pilots and bold pilots, but never old and bold pilots. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, there's an equivalent in French as well. Um, okay, well, that's, that's an important, uh, important thing to keep in mind and to stay ahead of the airplane. Um, I'm going to ask you for advice for two different populations. All right? um, the first population is to people, to uh, passengers, um, who are scared of flying, and especially when you are in an aircraft in Nepal, you see mountains that are higher than you, uh, next to you, so you're flying lower than the mountain tops, right? And that can be scary. Uh, what kind of, uh, not advice, but reassurance can you give um, passengers who maybe are afraid of flying in places like Nepal? One thing uh, people have to understand is when the pilot captains, they are going on uh, to all these uh, solar airfields like Lukla and other airfields, they are quite experienced. Okay, they go through a rigorous uh, training and all those things are there. Yes, they are making uh, errors. They are having uh, accidents, incidents. That is there. And the civilization is also looking into it, how to reduce that. Uh, we, what is uh, the problem in Nepal is we are supposed to be flying in uh, VFR conditions. But at times we have to go through uh, cloud, small cloud patches of cloud here and there. Now, if you, are, if you are not careful and go through clouds and there's a mountain inside that cloud, that's where stiffness happen. But again, I say the EGPWS is a very, very accurate and good instrument, which uh, helps the pilot uh, avoid such a uh, stiffness accident. So we have to train and uh, make the pilots aware how to use the GPS, okay. EGPWS correctly. And... Uh, 
hopefully now we will not have such uh, accidents civet accidents at least and the other thing is now uh, the airfields itself uh, has lot of hazards like the winds oh, yeah. like we, we discussed like the winds updraft downdrafts and all those uh, mountain waves and all that uh, turbulence so if uh, beyond certain uh, limit we have now started uh, having the airfield uh, closing closing the airfield so we cannot make an approach so those things have to be followed uh, civilization is also implementing all those things uh, and hopefully we don't uh, get into bad situations and so that, that reminds me are uh, is there a special vfr in uh, nepal or is it only vfr or ifr no we have special vfr but special vfr are in control zones yeah so in lukhlan all, all the stall fields are not control zones they are uncontrolled airspace and uncontrolled airfields okay and so is it class golf uh, yeah. or class golf okay and uh, kathmandu when you land when we're coming back is kathmandu and uh, area and uh, from uh, 50 uh, nautical miles from kathmandu uh, east to west and some uh, to south is uh, class c okay All right. So we we have mostly once you're out of that area you're in uncontrolled yeah. fields. And what is the language of communication with the tower in Nepal? Um uh, we do it in English. Yeah. And sometimes uh, people uh, have few words of uh, Nepali, but mostly it is in English. Okay. Well, that's that's really that's really interesting because most of the local communication in France is still in French. They can do it in English, but it's still mostly uh, yeah. French. Uh, mostly it is done in Nepal in English. Yeah. Nepali words we use uh, just to uh, for uh, ease of communication if you don't if you are stuck with some english words that's all that's it yeah. Yeah. okay and the the other group uh, that I would, um, could use some advice are new pilots so a lot of our listeners are new or um, student pilots uh, what kind of advice or tip would you give them as they're starting out uh, and they're there's they've got so much more to learn um, Uh, one thing uh, when i was doing my ab initio uh, one of our instructors uh, uh, he used to say ed bachelor was his name in canada he used to say flying is a game to be played by the rules so that is if you see that if you really understand that uh, that's the best advice anyone can give any pilot to so you be you fly and within the rules if you are within the rules 90% of time you are safe now because we start uh, because we get uh, think we know everything and our knowledge is better so we start to experiment and go beyond the rules and that's where we get into problems yeah, yeah it's it's um, luckily we we have an industry where checklists are are the norm uh, and i remember early in my flight training i you know the pre-flight when you pre-flight the, the aircraft um i remembered i start going through it quickly and at one point i forgot to turn on the fuel pump before taking off um my instructor pointed it out to me um but you know at a non critical phase of flight just reminded me saying well if you follow the checklist one by one this would not have happened it was not critical but to me it was like a very important lesson no matter how many times you do the same checklist you keep doing it and that's why it's there and uh, and that's that's reduced air accidents so much just that one invention of checklists Yes, uh, here also in uh, flying, we yes once we you start uh, 
let's say if you have 100 200 hours in a type of aircraft you think you know everything and you, you uh, memorize everything uh, and then you can do it much faster okay we say okay do, you can do it faster you can uh, memory by memory work you do it but still take out the checklist and read go through it and make sure that you have done it because you never know uh, when you will miss it and if you at a critical time if you miss it that's your last mistake you'll make okay um all right so that was the last question i had um thank you so much for uh, your time uh we were very lucky i mean not so much for the passengers for for us that we had this time um and i wish you all the best for your uh, upcoming flights thank you thank you very much and it was my pleasure to be talking with you thank you thank you Thank you for listening to episode 3 of the Ground Effect podcast. I hope it was as exciting for you to listen as it was for me to produce. We're not quite done with Pilots from Nepal and in the next episode, you'll be hearing from a pilot who started her career flying turboprops and is now flying the A320 for a Nepalese carrier. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and give it a rating. Ideally 5 star, but that's really up to you. The idea is to have more people discover it and hopefully enjoy it. And your comments and suggestions are always welcome. Um, you'll find ways to get in touch on our website, groundeffect.simplecast.fm. Again, that's groundeffect.simplecast.fm. So until next time, au revoir et bon vol à tous.